Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. We are recording for Contrarians Corner for Hancock. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host and friend Julio. Julio, we gather here today uh, to tackle a Patreon demand, a movie that has probably been jested about and we never fully discussed it, but I know it's been brought up since the inception of this podcast. And... Uh, come up in conversation with us long before, just due to my. I'm trying to think of how, as quickly and concisely to describe your relationship, my slight, <laughs> my slight displeasure with this movie, <laughs> and that is the 2008 Peter Berg film Hancock, starring of course Will Smith, Charlize Theron, and last but certainly not least Eddie Marzen. Oh, and Jason <laughs> Bateman's in this too. I thought you were gonna say Jaden Smith. From the sidelines. They cut him out of the movie. I mean, you got a random Thomas Lennon appearance and Mike Epps in this, too. It was and uh, it was a family affair. The guy from the Big Bang Theory. I don't know his name. Oh, uh, I, I do know John his name. Galecki. Johnny Galecki, yeah. Anyway, let's get to this, because we need to get through this to get to the second <laughs> half of the podcast. Julio, who... I mean, I know why, because they can, but who brought Hancock... And placed it firmly in Contrarian's canon. Uh, well, that would be our patron and friend and fellow podcaster, Ryan, uh, from uh, Spit and Polish and the Yum Yum podcast. Why did he do this besides the fact that he can? It boils down to this. You made them watch uh, Very Bad Things, directed by Peter Berg. But they liked it. They liked it. Yeah, but Ryan is kind of a twisted individual. <laughs> so I think that <laughs> he knew that you loved a Peter Berg movie. Therefore, he decided to somehow hit us back with a bad Peter Berg movie. And I got caught in the crossfire. Mission accomplished. Uh, full disclosure, he he told me this is what he was going to do. Uh, we were DMing the night uh, he and Bartek recorded the uh, Very Bad Things episode because he kind of wanted to get my little intro blip into it and... We had a back and forth about this about Hancock, and he's. I thought at the mo- in the moment he was kidding, but then I realized like when the joking went back and forth, he was not kidding. So <laughs> I knew this day would come. You know, he Ryan just took me out of my misery quicker than you know. I, I put this out long enough, and Ryan stepped up to the table. He plorped down his money, and he said, "Now." You know, <laughs> This may not be what you want, but it's what you need. It's also perfect timing. I mean, I, it, this is so the most positive read 
of Ryan's actions is that he saw that we were doing After Earth. And so mm-hmm. what better way to bookend the month of August than with Hancock? Another controversial entry in Will Smith's filmography. Yep. I-, I think it's off the beaten path in the same way that After Earth is off the beaten path. And that makes it worthy. It, it gives it extra value in, in Contrarian's canon. Yeah, whatever value there is to it. But we, we got ahead of ourselves here. Like I said, I'm trying to just kind of rush through this. Uh, if this is your first time listening to the Contrarians, thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for checking this out and giving us a chance. To all our returning listeners, we appreciate you all all the same. Give us a moment here while we explain what it is we do. Here on the Contrarians podcast, myself and Julio like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. We will find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, uh, a lot of times accompanied with that copyrighted image of certified fresh. Yeah, we typically shoot for about 85% and above uh, for our fresh episodes. Uh, And with those movies, what we will do is bring them down to size. We will take them down a peg or two, and uh, we will call out the negative aspects of these movies and their plots and characters, and sometimes even acting that was uh, just neglected to have been reported on by the mainstream media and those that contribute to the tomato meter score on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, And then on the other side of that coin, what we'll do is find movies on Rotten Tomatoes that are rotten, those nasty green splotches. Usually we shoot for about 30% and below, uh, being that this is a patron demand episode, we we're willing to bend the rules on that just a little bit. Uh, and with those movies, what we'll do is we'll celebrate them. We'll find the the positive merit, the revelations that these movies bring to us that the critics overlooked or just chose not to you know, bring to light. Uh, so being that Hancock is 41% on Rotten Tomatoes, a rotten movie here in this first half, uh, we're going to shine it up and make it look real nice. Uh, Julio, with this introduction, I know a lot of listeners can already tell how I feel about this movie, but uh, <laughs> if they want to get our uncensored and just uninterrupted tangents on Hancock, uh, they just need to hang around to the second half of the podcast. That's right. The second half of the podcast, aptly titled Real Talk, is when we get the real, we stop pretending that we either like or hate a movie and we just tell you how we really feel. And you're right, Alex. I would be surprised if Real Talk... It's not all about how much you despise <laughs> this Peterberg movie, this Will Smith vehicle. But do you know how I feel about Hancock? I mean, I know we've joked about it before, but uh, even if you did, you don't know how I feel about Hancock after rewatching it for the first time since it came out all those years ago. So, uh, I don't know, maybe I like it. Maybe I really like it. When we get to real talk, maybe I'll double down on the positive stuff about it. Only one way for you to find out, only way for listeners to find out, and that's to stick around to the second half of the show. Yeah, you got me second guessing now. I, I don't know. I'm a superhero guy, Alex. I like the genre, and I appreciate when a filmmaker and an actor take chances. I don't know. We could go either way here. It's like that episode of Everyone Loves Raymond where Deborah and Ray recount their stories to Robert about like what happened earlier in the day, and... It's, you know, they're both saying the same things, but have wildly different interpretations of like the way it is delivered. Uh, I just imagine if this was a movie or a comedy, it would flash back to us in the office at Cinemark talking about this movie. And it's me just yelling about how awful it is. And you're like, I don't know, man. I thought I thought it was OK. <laughs> and me just choose like, you know, just projecting whatever I wanted to feel onto you about it. It's it's the sequence and uh, it's a climax of 500 Days of Summer. <laughs> you are Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> That fucking movie. (laughs) 
Why? Why not? Why don't we just throw that in while we're about to talk about Hancock? All right, Julio. So we're here to discuss Hancock today. Peter Berg, Will Smith, Charlie Theron, Jason Bateman, uh, the little boy from Rob Zombie's Halloween. I mean, the whole gang is here. <laughs> As I said, 41% on Rotten Tomatoes. How'd you watch this bad boy, Julio? Uh, this bad boy was on Hulu. It was on Hulu. Yes, it was. Yeah, I watched a couple commercials before it started. Had to pause halfway through because one of the cats threw up on the bed. Uh, and then I resumed. I I paused at the exact precise moment, the best moment to pause the movie. And we'll talk about it when we start uh, recapping the plot. But basically, there is a break in the movie right in the middle where it becomes something else. And that's when I paused. It worked out. It's almost like the cat knew. I'll give you a break. Come clean some throw up. They knew it was time. Yeah, thankfully this was on Hulu, so got got this out of the way. Uh, it looked fine. I watched it in pieces throughout uh, my work day today. Just kind of taking it one step at a time. Thankfully, and I texted you about this, this bad boy, uh, I don't even think the actual action in the film reaches an hour and 30 minutes. I think it's... And I think it's an hour 32 with credits, so that the actual movie would be mm, 127 or so. Because I had in my mind that this was at least two hours, so that was a huge part of my dread coming into today. Uh, So we started off on a good note when I saw that it was an hour and 32 minutes total. The maddest rule, man. You can't really complain too much. (laughs) Well, I may have to break my own rule. (laughs) As Heath Ledger said, it's going to make me break my one rule. So here we go. (laughs) 41% 41% Julio, so it did not exactly set the world on fire critically. I mean, it did make over half a billion dollars at the box office, so I don't think John and Jane Q. Public particularly cared much. But what were the critics saying about Hancock? We'll start with Wilson Morales from BlackFilm.com, who says, Smith's invincibility at the box office may come down, for this film is a mess. Not even his charm and personality can save this train wreck. Well... I mean, I don't think that this made much of a dent on Will Smith's, uh, you know, reputation. Am I wrong? Uh, no. I, I mean, we talked about the last episode we did, uh, After Earth. I mean, this was before then. He yeah, I mean, he was still able to, uh, like I said on that episode, to will After Earth into existence. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Like I said, this movie made over $600 million, so he... He was still a box office bonanza. I guess their uh, their argument is that this like killed him as a box office attraction. But then After Earth happened. <laughs> IMAX. IMAX brought him back. Oh, yeah. And I mean, he had uh, Men in Black 3 that made a bunch of money. Well, that's and that's all Tommy Lee Jones, man. Seven pounds. <laughs> Maybe uh. Will read that review and he's like, I am a piece of shit. I don't deserve any of this. <laughs> Uh, next, Victoria Alexander from filmsinreview.com says, morally bankrupt. And this is coming from someone who thinks Ted Bundy was misunderstood. What? Why do, why do you need to throw that in there? And what is... Uh, I'm not even going to dignify that. Is she talking about herself? Victoria Alexander thinks that Ted Bundy was misunderstood? Or is she talking about Peter Berg? <laughs> or Will Smith? <laughs> who thinks that Ted Bundy was misunderstood? Morons. People that uh, refuse to get vaccinated. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Hashtag freedom. Um, 
And finally, Nick Rogers from State Journal Register, Springfield, Illinois, says, Fate, mythology, and even racism in America are tossed into a climax so grim, it's like watching Men in Black morph into Requiem for a Dream. The movie doesn't earn that drama, feeling cobbled together from earlier, less commercial drafts. Dude, Men in Black morphing into Requiem for a Dream sounds like an amazing movie. <laughs> I don't know that Peter Burke can direct it, but I would love to see him try. Tommy Lee Jones and Vincent D'Onofrio just going ass to ass at the end. <laughs> Hancock released 4th of July weekend, July 2nd, 2008. I screened this. That would have still been... Yeah, I would have been entrenched in college still in Denton. Right in the middle of my run at that theater. And I think I built this up and I screened it. Little did I know it would go on to make $629 million, give or take, at the box office with a budget of $150 million. So still Will Smith just getting all the money he could for the movies that he came out with. And what led us into this? So this was coming off the back of I Am Legend and mm-hmm. The Pursuit of Happiness. A couple years prior to this, he made Hitch and just kind of going over his big ones. So after Bad Boys 2, his sequel, he did uh, iRobot. Were you a fan of that one? I like it. I like it better yeah. than uh, I Am Legend. Same. And then Hitch, which I still have never seen, but I know people love that. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, Pursuit of Happiness, I Am Legend. Let us into Hancock. He was still Will fucking Smith. He could still make a movie and all that it was was a Will Smith movie. Um, so much so that I had forgotten Jason Bateman's in this. Uh, I did not forget Charlize Theron is in it because this her performance of this makes uh, makes her look Judy Garland-esque in Prometheus. I just love that this is sort of a precursor to uh, her more recent kind of uh, elevated status to action star. Like, mm-hmm. people are talking, like, they watch Fury Road, and they're like, oh, my God, Charlize Theron in an action movie. That's amazing. How did we not see it before? And I'm like, dude, it happened in Hancock. <laughs> she kicks ass in this movie. <laughs> she was in Hancock and Prometheus. Three times. She was in Reindeer Games. <laughs> well, I mean, there there was a lot going on in Reindeer Games. I wouldn't blame anybody for just kind of forgetting that, that she was in it. <laughs> I just want to meet one person. That, like, you ever seen Reindeer Games? Oh, the Donnell Logue movie. I just want to hear <laughs> one person say that. So I'm trying to set the table here. Will Smith was still Will Effin Smith, and with him brought guaranteed dollar dollar signs. Uh, I did not remember I Am Legend and this being in such quick succession, coming out uh, just a hair over six months of each other. And interestingly enough, I was going to say that this was the summer of the superhero boom. So you could almost say that this kind of got lost in the fold, Uh, namely Iron Man. And uh, then another little film you may have heard of called The Dark Knight came out in the summer of 2008. Wow. And so you could we could already make the argument that this may have been a little bit ahead of its time now. Julio, the significance of that is I I Am Legend. Uh, That was the movie that had the attached full-length trailer for The Dark Knight on it that me and two of my friends went to see I Am Legend just to see the Dark Knight trailer that was attached to it. And when the trailer was over, like my friend actually stood up and I was like, dude, we still have the movie. He's like, oh, yeah, that's why we're here. (laughs) 
I wanted to set that, you know, put that out there to kind of go ahead and um, for any of our younger listeners or people that just forgot what the landscape was like back in 2008, this superhero genre wasn't a thing. It was because of the year that we had and the success that the Iron Man's and obviously the Dark Knight had that led to the explosion and, you know, the fabric, the, the tearing of the fabric of society as we know it that has become the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe. Hancock came out today. People like me would be camped out waiting for it to open up, you know, deconstructing the whole idea of the superhero movie. Yeah, badass superhero. Yeah, it's kind of, I, I know we, we kind of talked about it during our Watchmen episode that Watchmen probably would have played better if he was coming out today. Because after so many superhero movies, so many years of superhero movies, a movie that deconstructs the genre would work much better. I mean, I guess you could make a similar argument for Hancock, except Hancock is more of a... uh, Hancock is not as gritty an analysis as Watchmen. Hancock is also a comedy. So Mm -hmm. I think that maybe Hancock didn't need to wait that long. In a way, like with Watchmen, we can say, okay, Watchmen came out too soon. But with Hancock, I think it was just on us. It was on on the audience, on the world, (laughs) that we didn't catch on. You know what I mean? Like, Hancock came out at the right time, like... I didn't realize it, but yeah, Dark Knight and Iron Man, it's just like Hancock is that that final movement where you have, you know, the you have the, the standard Holy Trinity. Yeah. You have the standard Marvel movie, the the standard DC movie, and then you have a movie that makes fun of everything they stand for. And uh, the image comics movie, the 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 radical third party that came along. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Dark Horse, literally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think we have well established through our run of the podcast that this we just never deserved Zack Snyder's Watchmen, and it was never going to work no matter when it came out. I think you're exactly right in that, that, that the failings of Hancock, if there were any, fell on us, the general public, and it's a, a shame we're not living to see the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh Hancocks. <laughs> so Hancock begins with Will Smith drunkenly passed out, on uh, just, you know, a bench in downtown L.A. I mean, he just is like a bum, and he has a case of booze. I had to pause it at one point to see what it is he's drinking. Classic Hollywood. It looks like Jim Beam, but it's called um, (laughs) Gentleman Jim's Bourbon is what he drinks, and he (laughs) keeps a few bottles of it with him at all times. Now, the opening here is just setting, you know, getting you ready for what's about to come in the next 90 minutes. He's a foul-mouthed, booze-swilling Take no prisoners style of crime fighting, but also doesn't really care for people much. And the, the first five minutes of the movie are loud and action packed. And like I said, they let you know what's in store. And it's great too, because it just builds to this crescendo to introduce the quiet calm that is Jason Bateman. It's all within the first seven minutes of this movie. And how'd you like the needle drops in this opening sequence? Move, bitch, get out the way. <laughs> Yeah, ludicrous as as Will Smith is just flying and hitting birds and looking hungover and talking about butts. He talks about butts a lot in this movie. One of the uh, escaping criminals calls him Soldier Boy, so that's one of the immediate timestamps in this movie of in terms of putting you exactly in the year two thousand eight. Necessary. Uh, you've kind of opened my eyes to the this extra perspective that. You know, this was the year that you had Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr. playing Tony Stark, and 
Christian Bale making the best Batman movie. And uh, they're so different. Those two characters, which became so revered and iconic in a way that, you know, anybody who ever plays Iron Man or Batman is going to be measured against those performances and those actors. And then here you had Will Smith with a completely original character, just a completely original creation. And he is so playing against the Will Smith uh type and we saw a little bit of that on after earth where we're like what is it like when will smith is not funny and here it's like what is it like when will smith doesn't take a shower what is it like when will smith just it's just grumpy all the time i mean could you compare it to like another superhero and we've had now over a decade of them deadpool maybe except that deadpool is actively trying to be like deadpool is a clown so i can't think of another mm-hmm. character like the one that Will Smith created in this movie. Certainly none of them portrayed by any actor on the level of Will Smith either, which I think is something that we've made a big deal out of, but people need to understand, <laughs> especially coming from our generation. When Will Smith is attached to a movie, it's a big deal. So especially when he's playing a, a foul mouthed booze hound, it's going to, it's going to, it's a big deal. It's going to stick with you for quite a while. That's a really good point because Downey Jr., I mean, he was still like Iron Man kind of brought him back. Yes. You know, now he's a star. Will Smith didn't mm-hmm. need to play a superhero. He was already a star. And he, he decided to just throw his hat in the ring and join the fun. But he didn't need this movie. This movie needed him. We mentioned Jason Bateman, who is, you know, Charlie Theron, I believe, gets second billing, but Jason Bateman's definitely the co-star of this. He plays Ray Embry. He's a struggling uh, public relations consultant. We get we see him in the a pitch meeting with, like, a pharmaceutical rep that just does not go well. He finds himself stranded on the train tracks and, you know, standstill L.A. traffic, and just when it looks like impending doom is on the horizon, uh, Hancock shows up and saves him. Causes just a ridiculous pile up in the process though and cuts a promo on the citizens of la just about uh, one woman's like i can smell that liquor on your breath he says because i've been drinking bitch but then jason bateman comes in he's just classic white man shit it's like no no we should thank hancock thank you hancock uh so speaking of playing against type jason bateman i mean we've but he's been on the show before what did we do i mean we did juno <laughs> We did uh, Smoking Aces. Smoking Aces. So in both instances, uh, much like in most of his career, he's kind of smarmy. It's rare and refreshing to see him playing this, I, I wouldn't say bland, but just this good guy. He doesn't have any ulterior motives. He's just a guy that wants to change the world for the better. And uh, there's no malice. Even in Arrested Development, where. You know, he's supposedly like the good guy in the family. He he always has a little bit of a, a darker side. But here's none of that. And it just, once again, it reminds you how much range Jason Bateman has. No, definitely. Uh, as with most things he's involved in, as we said with Juno, him and Jennifer Garner specifically are the, the ingredients that make that movie uh, turn out as well as it did. And here, yeah, he... Until like the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie, he just brings this unbridled uh, enthusiasm and naivety that is a breath of fresh air for uh, not this just this movie, but the genre in general, especially nowadays. Um, so agreed. Jason Bateman once again steals the show and what he's involved in. He, uh, he has Hancock come back to his house with him and introduces him to his son and wife. They ask him to stay over for dinner. The little boy adorably asks, do you like meatballs? <laughs> and then Charlie's Theron just turns into like 
we eventually figure this all out with her character, but mm-hmm. here, if you had no idea what was coming or if this is your first time seeing it, she just really comes off as like a uh, huge MAGA. Why is there an African American <laughs> gentleman in my neighborhood? The way she's like keeping distance from him and you know staring at him like very accusatorily. It's again, I couldn't really help but take note of how uncomfortable this was. There are some aspects of this movie that do not age very well, and I think they could have done a better job of setting up what was to come down the line than they did here. But I mean, to her credit, Charlie Theron was all in. You know, it, it's it's funny because I did not read it like that the first time, and even this time it took me a while because here's my my thing, and and maybe it's because you know this time around rewatching, I knew where everything was headed. But the one thing that we can't deny is that Peter Berg definitely makes you think that there's something going on, right? Like you watch mm-hmm. this and you're like, this is not normal behavior to me. The way that Will Smith and Charlize Theron reacted to each other when they first met and then subsequently was just how two attractive people react when they are like near each other. Because <laughs> they keep staring at each other, stealing glances, seem uncomfortable. Because obviously she's married and her husband and her kid are right there at the table. And so she's she seems... Uh, you know, flustered. She feels and, like her spot is threatened. There's another gorgeous person there that's not her. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and, you know, and, and Jason Bateman is completely oblivious. So when I watched it this time, especially, and I want to say that maybe the first time I watched it too, like I just felt this sort of threat. I remember being concerned for the marriage. And I'm like, man, Will Smith, it doesn't matter that that, that he's dirty and foul mouth and has no manners. Like, it doesn't matter because I think that Charlie Theron is eventually going to fall under his spell because they're both too gorgeous not to become a couple. And and I remember feeling bad for Jason Bateman because he doesn't even see it coming. You know, his character is just so, he has so much faith in humanity. But, and uh, one of the quotes I read mentioned it. I mean, there is a commentary on racism running throughout the movie. So actually, I think that your reading is more in line with what Peter Berg uh, was probably intending. Because, I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that even though... Will Smith, even though Hancock is a force for good, people turn on him in a way that I couldn't help but think, you know, would they be really this hateful toward him if he was a white superhero? But but instead he gets, I mean, he's surrounded by white people <laughs> whenever there's a mm-hmm. mob criticizing his actions. So I think that Berg was trying to make a point. It just wasn't the point of the movie, but it's it's there. So Ray did have an ulterior motive in asking Hancock over for dinner. He wants to help him rehab his image. I'm not entirely sure how this works, but he wants to help Hancock become more endeared by the public. And he just explains to him, hey, I do public relations. I make people you know, look better and help them with their public persona and ensuring that they're endeared by the public. It's not he, – he's a – person he's a superhero it's not like he's selling merchandise though so it's yet quite quizzical it's it's a very noble undertaking by uh, jason bateman by ray because i don't really see how he profits off this at all but he's going to help this superhero uh, rehab his image well i I can see it and on both ends one even if there was no profit i think that the movie by now has established that jason bateman he's not in it for the money he's in it to change the world and uh, I think that becoming fast friends with the most powerful being in the planet certainly can help you achieve that. You know, it's like if, if Superman was real, 
wouldn't you want to be his PR guy, even if it doesn't make you any money? Because the side yeah. hustle that you get from that relationship is definitely worth it. That's a fair point. So Hancock's torn on the matter, but he's going to go back and meet with Ray at his home to see, you know, what he's pitching and see if he's, you know, if he wants to buy what he's selling, so to speak. Uh, when he arrives back there, he is confronted by a young Michael Myers. What is that kid's name? I know we had the hardest time pronouncing it. It's like Dag something or other. But anyway, yeah. the boy who played Michael Myers in Rob Zombie's 2007 Halloween, previously covered on The Contrarians, and uh, his name is Michelle, which... Uh, he's, I guess, a French kid that lives in the neighborhood. He's been bullying uh, the boy, Jason Bateman's little boy, Aaron. And Hancock becomes aware of this and goes there and he's like, hey, you need to be nice type thing. And Michael Myers is having none of it. <laughs> it's Michael calls Myers. Him an asshole. I saw in the trivia section IMDb, it's like, of note, William Forthsy and Rob Zombie's Halloween says that uh, Michael is going to grow up and become gay and start calling himself Michelle. In the movie Hancock, his character's name was Michelle. <laughs> My thought was, yeah, he probably got paid a little more to be on screen with uh, Will Smith as opposed to William Forsyth. Uh, I geeked out so hard, man, because I had forgotten. It's been a while since we did the, the Rob Zombie Halloween episode. And uh, mm-hmm. when he, because he has just the one scene, but he showed up on screen. And I'm like, is that? And then I remembered it just it all came flooding back that you'd mentioned that uh, he had gone on to be on Hancock. And I was like, man, that is awesome. Can't wait to see that kid again <laughs> randomly <laughs> 10 years from now when we do a different movie. Uh, so he does not play nice. So Hancock throws him straight up in the air and catches him on the way down. And his hair is all poofed out and he's crying and runs home to his mom. Jason Bateman sees this go down and with impeccable Jason Bateman delivery, says, not okay. Uh, <laughs> takes Hancock inside and basically gives him a pitch meeting. He shows him these clips on YouTube of destruction he's caused and you know, kind of brings him up to speed on what his public perception is. And uh, I wrote down the line here. He says, "It's uh, Jason Bateman Ray tells Hancock, it's not a crime to be an asshole, but it's counterproductive. And he like Hancock grabs a bottle of booze and I mean it's funny because it's Bateman and his delivery is just you know Marty's incredible and he just says what are you doing it's the middle of the day come on and kind of like, <laughs> takes the bottle away from him but it's a sales pitch he's trying to pitch him on what he needs to do and part of it is a public apology and then the other part is turning himself over to the LAPD and doing a little bit of time in the clink I mean it makes perfect sense and I like that. The movie never tries to bend over backwards to uh, to make it to where Hancock would actually be imprisoned, right? Like, mm-hmm. he surrenders voluntarily because there is no way. I mean, the movie makes a point to tell you, yeah, he could leave prison at any time if he wanted to, but he chooses not to. I think that's great because if we were to spend time coming up with a way to justify that Will Smith, once he goes in, he can't go out, this movie would break the Mattis rule. You would have an extra 10 minutes at least trying to come up with a, <laughs> you know, a design. It was like, oh, do they dampen his powers? Do they, you know, give him like a, a cell, like special cell like Magneto? You know? So I'm glad that they were just like, no, it's just, it's sometimes the best road is the easiest, like the, the, the most traveled, like the, you know, just direct straight line. He surrenders, and he doesn't leave prison because he he just doesn't. Hancock goes to jail, and immediately when he's there, he's confronted in the yard. I guess these guys just think, since they've been you know putting in work, and all of them are big and scary, that they'll be able to beat up Hancock 
just not really processing that he's a superhero. And uh, he shoves the head of one of them into the anus of the other. Because <laughs> that's what we do. So this is where the movie... You know, you wouldn't see this. I know it sounds almost like an obvious thing to say. It's like you wouldn't see this in a mainstream superhero movie. But also, I'm talking about not just the fact that this happens, but the fact that there is a shot showing you that it's happened. You know what I mean? Like the setup is that Will Smith just wants to walk to his cell and not mess with anybody. He's trying to be a good boy. And these two guys are blocking him. And then he's like, all right, well, if you don't move, I'm going to stick your head up his butt. And then they don't move. And then you hear the noise off camera and the camera is focusing on the horrified reactions of the, the other inmates. Mm. And your average movie would stop there. Peter Berg has the balls to then give us a, just a wide shot that shows you that the impossible mind-bending image of a dude with another man's head entirely up his ass. Which is like, that's just, the movie breaks from reality in a way that you didn't expect. <laughs> For the sake of comedy. Because, I mean, it's not like they're taking, <laughs> that would be horrifying if this scene was played, if it wasn't played for laughs. But uh, thank God it's a comedy, so so it's meant to be funny. And I guess it's kind of like a touchstone telling you, hey, just so that we're all on the same page, this is the kind of movie that you're watching. A dude just tuck his head up somebody's ass and they're both still alive just acting like like it hurts a little (laughs) but that's it and now we go to a montage of just his time in prison uh counseling groups that he's in him checking in with ray ray explaining you know that they're wanting to keep you here for eight years which is actually four will smith then just like knocks down the door like he's about to leave and he's like hey you know they're gonna let you go sooner or later uh, you know they're gonna need your help and eventually that that happens he shares a little bit in one of his uh, group sessions and seems to be you know kind of opening up and becoming a bit more comfortable with him and who he is and he is summoned by the police uh, he goes to help them he flies and when he lands he doesn't you know cause destruction and he's wearing his new you know uniform or costume or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it that Ray got for him and you know the score has really um, picked up in positivity and uh, vigor and it's very heroic and you know he's clean shaven now and he's the hero and uh, he's uh, he's thanking everybody for their good work <laughs> it's- yes. And he helps out with this, like, heist that's going on that's, like, GTA-level shit of guys with machine guns that are blowing cars up and have bombs strapped to people in the bank. It's, like, the middle of a Tuesday in L.A. I mean, I didn't think this shit has happened since, you know, heat. Uh, And it's serious shit, but he just walks up like it's nothing. He just brushes off all these bullets that are flying at him. Um Woke hero Hancock, before he helps a wounded officer away, he asks for permission to touch her, which, (laughs) considering that he tries to grope a woman in the first uh, five minutes of the movie, uh, just grope a woman that walks by him, you can tell that he's learning here, and he's becoming a more mature and um, getting more acclimated to dealing with people. Yeah, I mean, we don't know, we're not sure how much time passed in that montage, Right. But it actually explained if it's being, a you know, at least a month, let's say it would explain why 
this this heist is so violent because uh, I think within two days of him being in prison, the news were reporting that the the crime rate had gone up. So the longer he stayed in prison, the worse crime is going to get. So it makes sense that when he finally is summoned, things have gotten really bad. He is able to save the day, though, and the process cuts off Eddie Marzen's hand. Uh, Kenneth Red Parker in this. He's the henchman, or he's the leader of these bank robbers. And <laughs> yeah, Hancock slices his hand off and sends him to jail. And so now that guy just gets to stew on what's going on. This is where uh, he finally, he's done. He won. And then he thanks the officers one last time. And then the I guess the captain or whatever goes like, no, Hancock, thank you. <laughs> You did a good job. <laughs> but he's an instant celebrity now. Everyone loves him. So Ray and Charlie's Theron, uh, Mary, Ray and Mary take him out to a nice dinner that night. Uh, a wild Thomas Lennon appears. And it's really, that's it. He just has his cameo. <laughs> he's like, hey, it's me, Thomas Lennon. <laughs> and they end up having dinner where we get Hancock's origin story, which is a real whopper. It's a real corker, Julio. Can you Can you tell us what his origin story is? Uh, he doesn't remember. <laughs> That's his origin. I loved it, man, because well, it, it's actually a, a twofer. Because before we get the uh, Will Smith Hancock origin story, we get the the meet cute story from when Jason Bateman met Charlie Theron, which is really the one that was kind of like gnawing at the back of my head because it was like, how did this happen? Like Bateman is a good looking guy, but Charlie Theron is Charlie Theron, and he is not even you know, devious Jason Bateman here where you could have been like, oh, he manipulated the world in order for, for Charlie Stair to fall in love with him and then get married and everything. Uh, and, and the story is actually like pretty sweet. Apparently he he was married to someone else and his wife, you know, that woman died giving birth to, to his little boy, to Aaron. So he was a single dad walking the aisles of a grocery store just aimlessly trying to figure out what kind of diapers to buy. And then he ran into Charlize Theron, and she was like an angel that came to to save him. And that's why he calls her Angel. That's his his pet name for her. And it's like, Bateman is telling this story, and I don't think I've ever seen him be this vulnerable. And it was adorable. He has this really stupid smile on his face. It's clear that, you know, he's been drinking for a while. I think even Charlize Theron mentioned, like, oh, you're drunk. But the way she's looking at him, you know, it's like, oh, there is actually, you know, because I told you, I was a little worried about her looking at, like, she was attracted to Will Smith. But... When I saw this performance, the way that she was looking at Jason Bateman, I was like, no, they actually care for each other. I think that she actually, she does love him. This this marriage is going to be okay. So that was part one. And then, yeah, then they transition, they transition to, to to Hancock's origin story. And that is that he he woke up one day in a hospital in Miami and he didn't remember who he was. It looks like, you know, he had a wound in his head. So they assumed that he'd be mugged. Mm-hmm. He didn't have anything. So when they checked him out, they're like, we need your John Hancock here. And he signed John Hancock. And he thought that that was his name. Because <laughs> he woke up and he was an idiot. <laughs> and then eventually he realized that he had superpowers. Which he assumes that he didn't have before he was mugged. So, But yeah, I mean, there's really... It, it's a big mystery. It's kind of like a you know Wolverine's origin. Where like, he doesn't remember. He doesn't know. He just knows that he is. It's suddenly... I mean, we're like right in the middle of the movie like this we're like 50 minutes in 45 minutes in and uh i felt like this was the right time for us to get some insight into hancock and i felt that the movie up till then had been keeping me at arm's length when it came to him 
like I'm like, oh, he's funny and you know, he's entertaining to watch. But I didn't know what made him tick. And then the scene revealed that oh, that's because he doesn't even know what makes him tick. Like he woke up with no memories. All he knows is that he has these powers, and he just has this sort of like sadness inside that he doesn't know how to deal with. <laughs> and uh, it was great. I think that this movie recontextualizes you know the experience that we're having and and it sends the the story into a completely different direction this is by the way where i stopped and went to clean up my cat's throw up i was like because i remember i was like oh yeah this is where you know something else starts happening it's no longer about jason bateman doing pr for a for an angry superhero but yeah overall i mean it might be the best scene in the movie so yeah after that bombshell of an origin story he puts a drunk Jason Bateman to bed and then goes down and he tries to fucking make a move on his friend's wife. <laughs> this guy that's helping him, you know, turn his life around. He just walks up to Charlie Theron and, you know, kind of gives her the the Google eyes and he moves in to try to kiss her and she leans in to kiss back and then she throws him through the house and then she flies over to him to threaten him. She has superpowers too. <laughs> what a twist. Are we still in the Shaman anthology? What's going on? She tells him, if you tell Ray, I'll kill you or something. And Charlize Theron is a, a superhero too. Wouldn't you know it? <laughs> well, she's not a superhero, Alex. She has superpowers. Those are oh, okay. two completely different things. She is sorry. not using her powers at all. Uh, whereas like Hancock, he's actually saving people. Okay. She's a uh, homemaker with superpowers. There you go. So Hancock wants to know what the fuck's going on. So he <laughs> says, hey, you know, meet at my place. He comes to the house the next day and Ray's like, what happened to the house? She jokingly says, Hancock sneezed. And we get this comedic bit of Jason Bateman talking on the phone while Will Smith is trying to inflict physical damage on Charlie's Theron, you know, breaking shit over her head or trying to stab her in the little um, serving fork bends. It's... You know, all played for laughs. He wants to know what's going on, though. So he says, meet me at my place at four, whatever time he gives her. She knows where he lives somehow, uh, despite the fact of no one knowing where Hancock lives. Uh, I guess it's just intuition. Well, there's there's a whole lot of stuff that gets explained uh, towards the end of the movie. She makes allusions to the fact that uh, her and Hancock, they can't escape each other. That, you know, somehow they find themselves attracted you know, to each other. So they, which is why, even though she's tried to leave him behind, he keeps reappearing. So I'm assuming that the same way that he's attracted to her, even unconsciously, she's also attracted to him in a way that, you know, she can just find where he is if she wanted to. Fair point. But she is the bad guy now. She shows up, Julio, with her hair straightened, looking real sultry, has sunglasses on, and has her eye makeup all done up and looks like fucking Natalie Portman in Black Swan. Uh, it's a different Charlize Theron than we were sold for the previous 40 minutes. She's not a mom. She is a, a goddess now. She's uh, fucking Storm is what she is. And she, she kind of claims, and I believe her, that she's more powerful than Will Smith. And based on what we see in the remainder of the movie, I believe it. But it's pretty crazy. It, it's, man, I, it's, it's really hard to convey how hard of a left turn this is <laughs> like as far as like the narrative <laughs> and you, you know like if you're not experiencing it because right now if you haven't watched the movie and you're just hearing us tell the story of it you're like okay and then that happened but when you're watching the movie and you are fully invested in the story of a pr guy that is helping this 
this misguided superhero turn his life around. You're like, this is cool. This is great. And then halfway through the movie, that story is over. And then you start a completely different thing with the same characters, but it's just a completely different narrative. Mm-hmm. That is such a huge risk to take. And I would say nine out of 10 directors wouldn't be able to pull it off. So thank God that Peter Berg knew what the hell he was doing. And he was working with the script that was strong enough to just provide him with the structure to make this left turn and and survive, not flip over. Uh, Because it works. You know, like by now they're arguing and I was just trying to keep up. And there's so much exposition, like in a good way, like interesting uh, mythology that is delivered, that is uh, explained by Charlie Theron here. I was just, you know, glued to the screen trying to learn what was going on. Yeah, they get in this fight and she explains, like Julio was saying, they've known each other for is it 300 years, 3000 years or some shit. And he, you know, Will Smith's just like, I, I don't fucking know what you're talking about. And this fight leads to her summoning the wind and the, the clouds and the rain and the snow and the lightning. And they destroy, uh, coincidentally enough, the building that Jason Bateman is working in. And they fly right by the window that he's working in and they take it out. And then they're arguing on the ground. He's like holding her down. He's like, I'm sorry. I don't know what I did to you. (laughs) And then they they just both look up at this war-torn destruction (laughs) that they've caused. And Jason Bateman's head's just like poking out of this, you know, 30th story window. Like, what's going on? They lock eyes. This is a... Dude, give me a better love triangle than this. Like Will Smith, Charlize Theron, Jason Bateman. Like, I don't think it can be done. It it has everything. It has a... It's sexy, it's funny, it's dramatic, it's amazing. And and it's all encapsulated in those, like, two shots, you know. It's like, well, it's three shots, you know. The close-up of Will Smith, close-up of Charlie Theron, close-up of uh, Jason Bateman. Just all the cards are on the table now. Because now he knows that his wife has superpowers. He does. And it's classic Bateman meltdown, too. Why were you flying? (laughs) Very, very Jason Bateman. And I do appreciate Peter Berg knowing what he had here and just letting him, you know, roll with it. So it naturally it causes a rift, and a fight, and I, Hancock goes out, and I think he's been sober for a while because he goes and grabs himself a couple bottles of Gentleman Jim's bourbon. <laughs> uh, unbeknownst to him, he's breaking up a, a robbery though at this convenience store, uh, and once he figures it out, he throws one of them through the wall, and then throws a Zagnut bar at this guy who has a gun, and he throws the bar with. Such intensity and such velocity that it knocks this guy through the front window. And Will Smith, you know, Hancock just tries to no-sell it like he usually does. Uh, but something's wrong because he looks down and he's got these two bullet holes that are leaking. He's he's no longer impervious. This is where they could have used the immortal line in Logan. Of, so this is what it's like. And just imagining <laughs> Will Smith belt that out in this sequence would have been something else. <laughs> they don't need that. They don't need that because Will Smith is such a good actor. He doesn't need to say it. He just has it on his face. Uh, they rush him to the hospital, man, which I... I mean, I honestly... I didn't remember any of this <laughs> from the the only other time that I watched this movie. So this was almost like watching it for the first time. I didn't remember that he got shot. I remember that they rushed him to the hospital. And and by now, when they were having the, the three-way conversation with Bateman, you know, Charlie Theron has revealed that, that Will Smith is actually her husband or, you know, was her husband once upon a time, you know, because they're both immortal. Yeah. Which leads to Bateman saying like, oh, that's, that's the kind of thing that you should mention on a first date. Yes. <laughs> but... Uh, it's pretty cool because, you know, I didn't expect... This is the kind of thing that happens 
if, if you're talking about a superhero franchise, you don't take the hero's powers off, like in the first movie. You know, that happens in the second movie, third movie, maybe. But Peter Berg was like, I'm going to fit everything in in these 90 minutes. They're going to be like tight and punchy. So so Hancock basically loses his powers for, you know, the, the last bit of the movie. Yeah, and this is, I had in my notes here, this would have been the Oscar scene for Best Original Screenplay, where Charlie's Theron comes to his hospital bed and explains all this, that they've known each other forever, but the closer they get to each other, it depletes their powers. It's kind of like a, you know, magnets type thing. Turn them around and they resist one another. The difference is here, the closer they get, the the more their powers are resistant, and it, what it does is it basically just drains them of their the abilities and strength. I would say it's also her Oscar clip because that's that's a long monologue and she explains that yeah. they've tried to make it work and every time they do because they start becoming normal, becoming human, they suddenly find themselves in danger and Will Smith always has to rescue her because society, because she is the female of the couple, like society usually goes after her and he has to risk his life to save her and uh, and that's why the last time that this happened... When they got mugged coming out of the movies after watching Frankenstein, after he, you know, he got hit so hard that he lost his memory, she just left him. She abandoned him. Because <laughs> it was for his own good. It's complicated. It's it's just this sort of, you know, humans are complex beings. And uh, I bought it. I mean, it was just the idea that you love someone, but being with that person makes them less than what they really are. That is pretty mm-hmm. powerful stuff. And that's basically what she's what she went through. Every time that they started to settle, he would become vulnerable. She would become vulnerable as well. And it was like, this is not going to end well. So it makes sense. It's a sad decision that she decided to abandon him. But it also, it, it, it makes sense. You add in that whole thing about how they can't escape each other. And that makes it even more poignant because she doesn't really go into detail. But... The fact that she says that this has happened several times, it means that she's tried to leave him behind several times. Maybe maybe he didn't have amnesia every time, but, you know, he's always managed to find her. (laughs) So uh, even when he didn't remember who she was, he still showed up at her doorstep. It's just it's a pretty sad, pretty epic love story overall. And on top of that, you know, it's like, man, I feel bad for for these two. But I also feel bad for Jason Bateman because he's such a good guy. And how can he compete against this? He and he's watching this. Him and his son are there, and he's just kind of watching her give this whole monologue and explain everything. And yeah, it's exactly that. They show him at one point, and he's just like, "What the fuck am I supposed to do? I'm just Jason Bateman." <laughs> Running parallel with this, though, the leader of the bank heist, Eddie Marzen, and the two gentlemen who were involved in the head up the ass action formed like a an alliance is the word I'm looking for in prison, and they escaped. And blink and you miss it, because the only reason you know they escape is because they show it like in the background on a TV set, saying, you know, this guy escaped. And their only goal is <laughs> to end Hancock. It, <laughs> it's seriously that end, the Office episode that ends with that close-up on Roy's face where he says, I am going to kill Jim Halpert. That's like these three guys. <laughs> they're just there to kill Hancock. And, you know, they show up. It's like this episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns hires an assassin to kill uh, Grandpa Simpson. And the the guy fails on his first two attempts. And he's like, there is one last option, but it is 
uh, delicate and precise as a well-played hand of chess. And then this guy kicks in the door to the retirement home and just starts shooting a machine gun into it. <laughs> That's exactly what these guys do here. They just show up at the hospital with shotguns and just start shooting everywhere. But Hancock is, you know, determined to fight. He helps Ray and Aaron find shelter. Uh, how does Charlize get injured in all this? Because she gets strapped to a hospital bed. Well, she gets shot when they break into the room. She's, That's she, right. Yeah, yeah, she's just right next to Hancock. She just gave her Oscar uh, speech, and then she gets shot. She's not bad anymore. She's not a bad guy. She just wants him to get away. Right. Because, you know, the longer they stay together or near each other, then the weaker they're both going to get. They're, they're both going to lose her, their powers. And uh, case in point, you know, she's no longer as strong as she was at the beginning of the movie, which allows yes. her to get shot when these guys break in. So... uh it's crazy because, yeah, I mean, they've established, Peter Bird has established how powerful these guys, uh, Charlie Sarah and, and Will Smith, are. But now he has to find a way to make it to where uh, Eddie Marsan and his other two guys are still a threat. And so the way that they explain it away is it's pretty genius, right? Well, if they're together, they're weakening each other. Therefore, they can be hurt. And I was actually, I appreciated that they gave Hancock, they, they gave Will Smith a costume uh, but they never went down as far as giving us costume supervillains. Like Eddie Marson, because he lost a hand in his previous encounter with Hancock. Now he has a hook in one of his hands, like instead of one of yes. his hands. But that's as far as it goes. Like he never, he doesn't get a, a supervillain code name and he doesn't get a crazy costume. Keeping it grounded still amidst all the madness, Peter Burke still managed to, to make it look realistic. So she's shot, strapped to a hospital bed, and Hancock's determined to save the day. But at this point, they're they've become almost one. You know, the, the, some people say that twins can feel when others are hurt, or some people are just have this cosmic connection, and that seems to be the case because Will Smith here fighting these bad guys. Every time he gets hit, we cut to a shot of Charlie's Theron writhing in pain in this hospital bed. Some people would think it's embarrassing. I think it's bold to see two highly respected actors taking part in a scene like this <laughs> you gotta swing for the fences alex you got to i mean uh, this is uh, you would never see this it felt wrong not to swing <laughs> <laughs> peter berg just like tell charlize to swing away <laughs> <laughs> i well i was gonna say this is something that you wouldn't see in uh modern superhero movies uh, no it, this is by now everything is vanilla everything is they've uh, uh homogenized everything you know it's it's all the same i'm isolating shit that audio clip of you <laughs> uh in, it's gonna be in, my my tone when i get a text message from you as you saying that <laughs> uh it, watching hancock it was just kind of uh i had forgotten how good it was back in the day when before we had settled into the big empires of superhero movies with like, you know, two studios kind of like churning out everything kind of the same variations on the same notes. And here you have Hancock, you know, kind of reminding me of what it was like when the genre was just booming and everything was possible and you could do whatever you wanted. There, there were no limits. Like Eddie Marsan would never be cast <laughs> as, the, as the big villain in any of the superhero movies that we make now. Just that mm. fact alone, the fact that they did that, that they, he was a big bad here. Uh, it's like Will Smith against Eddie Marson. When would that happen? Ever. 
it all took me back to when when uh, superhero movies took chances. That year we had three paths: Iron Man with the Marvel path, The Dark Knight with the Warner Brothers slash DC path, and then you had Hancock. And in a perfect world, those three branches would have gone forward together, you know, separate but together. Okay, well, you like the safety of Marvel, the safety of DC, or the unpredictability of shit like Hancock. But unfortunately, that's not how it went. And now it's like, what are the odds of a movie like Hancock coming again anytime? It's it's unlikely. And with that level of talent, too. We made the joke about swinging. I was I was waiting. I've just been like waiting here, grinding my teeth, waiting for you to finish. So I was gonna say, Speaking of swinging, Jason Bateman murders a guy with an axe. God. Jason Bateman shows up and... He chops off Eddie Marsden's other hand and then kills him with an axe. It is something that I had completely forgotten about, <laughs> and I was so uncomfortable when this came up. <laughs> well, because he's, he's such a good guy. Yes, it's Jason Bateman. How many people does Will Smith kill in this movie? And it never makes you uncomfortable. No. It's like the scene in Juno where he comes on to Juno. It's like, what? No, it's Jason Bateman. <laughs> Don't do that. It's necessary, though. You you needed him to regain his confidence because now it's basically, I mean, after witnessing the connection between Charlie Stair and his wife and Will Smith, it's like, how could he ever go back to normal? How could that relationship ever go back to what it was before? Mm-hmm. So it's necessary to give Bateman that, that final shot. He is the one that beats the bad guy, not Hancock. Hancock does his part, you know, by just basically, in a way, saving Charlie Theron's life. But but Jason Bateman is the one that gets the the big hero moment, and that was that was pretty rewarding. Yeah, and he kind of just has this look on his face, like now it's over, <laughs> now we can move on. <laughs> Unfortunately for Mary and Hancock, we are able to move on. Hancock jumps out of the building, and he's still weak on powers. But you can see the further away he gets, the more his stride increases, and the more ability he has, and he knows what this means and he relocates to New York City, right? I think it was New York. Yeah. And so they're keeping posts at opposite ends of the country. Uh, Hancock still fighting crime. Mary going back to her family, just what she wants to do, just be a normal person. And as a parting gift to Jason Bateman, to Ray for all his help through this, uh, the logo of his company that he's trying to get off the ground, he just, he fucking, he puts it on the moon. <laughs> I, I don't know how, but he does. <laughs> Hancock can do can do whatever he wants, I guess. I mean, once he's away from Charlie Theron, his powers are boundless. It's a it's a heart, and it looks. I mean, it's red. So I don't know about you, but I instantly thought like that's blood. I thought that he just massacred, <laughs> wiped out Canada, or used an entire nation of bloodshed just yeah. to put that on the moon. All in the name of love and friendship. I was happy to see. I did not expect this. I expected some sort of bittersweet ending where that marriage did not stay together or that friendship didn't stay together. You know, like, I was rooting for everybody to be happy and I was surprised that by the end of the movie, everybody was happy. The friendship between Mm -hmm. Jason Bateman and Will Smith was still going strong. The marriage between uh, Jason Bateman and Charlie Theron was still going strong. And Charlie Theron and Will Smith were like managed to get through all their shit and and figure out a way to coexist. So, for a movie that's as dark as this movie gets sometimes, and and as I guess as cynical as, as it can be, 
for it to arrive to at a happy ending that's actually believable that was that was pretty impressive i was just impressed that this movie reached an ending and it was over did you see the writing credits uh no i'm gonna be honest uh no i, I didn't tune out right away because i remember the mid credit scene with mike epps was coming up so i enjoyed that what uh who got the writing credits on this yeah uh, well he's not the only credited writer but uh our friend uh vince gilligan is listed vince breaking bad gilligan wrote hancock at least a draft of hancock at some point um i'm gonna need we need to get vince on the horn here and see <laughs> in his draft brian cranston was meant to play hancock we need to see how much of this was uh the after earth syndrome of will smith just saying yeah your name can be on it but i'm really gonna do this <laughs> And I want my son to play Jason Bateman. That wouldn't have made sense. <laughs> Jaden was no. That's what it made it so great. He, he's like <laughs> he's friends with someone who's thirty years younger than him. <laughs> Julio, fuck this movie, and fuck you, Ryan, for making me watch this movie again. <laughs> All right, so let's... The, that's the worst of the worst. Let's yeah, let's move on to real talk so we can get our feelings out on this movie. Cause I, I have even more than the first time I watched it. And there's shit about this movie that ages so piss poor that it definitely will <laughs> lead to discussion points. So Julio, let's move along to real talk. Let's go to real talk. Oh, I get it. I put some, uh, well, most of you in here. I can understand you feeling some kind of way about that. What? Uh, so, I'm gonna do me, and I'm gonna let you do you. I, I don't want no trouble. All right? Just wanna go to my cell. Excuse me. Excuse me, please. <laughs> You don't move, your head is going up his ass. <laughs> Y'all fellas sure you want to ride this train? Shoot you, asshole. And we are back. But before we get into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let patrons know what they can expect in our patron feed. We also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. This time around, uh, we have quick video review requests from our patron Sam Hurley from uh, Movie Reviews and 20 Qs. Alex, you got homework and I got homework. I okay. have to watch Paddington, the movie about the, the Peruvian bear that everybody seems to love. Very appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, on your end... You have to watch Hunt for the Wilder People, which is written and directed by Taika Waititi. Why have you been assigned this? Because you didn't care for Thor Ragnarok, also written and directed by Taika Waititi. So it's not that Sam is trolling you. I think it's just that Sam is hoping that you recognize the talent of a, a fellow New Zealander. Oh, uh, yeah. Expanding horizons. Looks like it's free on Tubi. 100 minutes, New Zealand. Look forward to it. Yeah. Sam it's Neil. Not, it's not, yeah. It's not, yeah, Sam Neil, And it's not a superhero movie. So, you know, this might God work. 
<laughs> Patrons can also find our bonus episode on natural selection. Uh, we still haven't recorded, but by the time that you guys hear this, it should be on the feed. By then, Alex will know if I actually like that movie as much as he does, or if I dislike it as much as he dislikes Hancock. Stay tuned. God, um, I would hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, the usual stuff. We'll have the cutting room floor segments where you find out all the stuff that didn't make it into the actual episode. And then, of course, Contrarians After Hours. It's our offshoot mini spin-off show where we tell you about other things that we've been watching, we've been reading, we've been playing. Sometimes they have to do with the topic of the main episode, sometimes... They don't. Uh, Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time? I can't remember if we ever talked about it too far in detail, but I watched Jackie Brown again over the weekend, and I really Ooh. think that may, as time goes on, it stands to reason that it could take the throne of Tarantino movies for me. And I know we've, you know, obviously we did Pulp Fiction. We had our long discussion about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I also watched again over the weekend. What a fucking just banger of a film that is. <laughs> Uh, but I don't remember if we'd ever really had a deep dive into uh, Jackie Brown, so I thought we could have a little bit of discussion about that. That sounds awesome. I, I love that movie, so I look forward to talking about it. Uh, on my end, uh, well, Alex, I'm back to watching documentaries with a vengeance. I had I could have go. spent like all of After Hours telling you about all the documentaries I watched, but I picked uh, easily my favorite and one of the best movies I've watched all year. So far, the documentary Val about Val Kilmer. Have you heard about this? Ooh, I have. It sounds very interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I honestly, I didn't know until very recently, like what's been going on with Val Kilmer. And uh, when I started, when when I first heard about this documentary, I found out that oh, he's been sick. He had like throat cancer. And uh, this documentary is. Uh, I mean, we'll talk about it in depth it's made by him basically it's a uh, 90% of the footage is footage that he shot throughout his life and uh, so that makes it extra personal i would say really really interesting and then on the other end of the spectrum still a movie that i i enjoyed but not definitely nothing like this uh documentary about val kilmer is the movie haywire which i believe you've also seen from a few years ago haywire is great it's a shame oh. Great. What came of the lead, but yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I finally got around to watching it, and uh, yeah, I have thoughts. So, I'm going to be talking about Haywire, about Val, and about Jackie Brown. What a great after-hours segment that should be. Uh, if that sounds interesting, any of the things I said sound interesting, you should head over to patreon.com slash Prime, take a look at our tiers, See if you feel like contributing to the Contrarian Supplements, becoming part of the Contrarian Supplements family, and just enjoy all the extra content. We love what we do for y'all. You know that you love what we do for y'all. If you're so inclined, throw us a few bucks. You can do things like tell us to watch fucking Hancock. It's uh, <laughs> well, something... <laughs> not anymore. No, that's why I said like Hancock. Okay. <laughs> like fucking Hancock, as I said. But yeah... If there's a specific movie that, you know, you've wanted to hear our thoughts on, throw our way, you can do that. If you just want access to our extra little goodies, that's there too. Give it a try. Throw a buck our way. See if you like it. Stick around. Maybe give a little more if you want. We'll continue to do the uh, the main feed here 
free as always because we love it so much. But if you're ever curious about uh, some of these extra movies we dip into or our thoughts elsewhere, you know where to find them. And all of our current patrons, we love you and hold you so dearly, except for Ryan, because I had to watch <laughs> Hancock again. Well, let's let's get on it, Alex. Let's stop the games. Let's talk about how we really feel regarding Hancock. Let's go to real talk. Oh, it's awful, dude. It's <laughs> it's worse than I remembered it, and you know I hated that movie. Even worse than I remembered from screening it 12, 13 years ago. Whatever the case, fuck this movie, Julio. <laughs> this has been real talk. Good night. We have... Uh, there'll be a lot to discuss here. Before we even get into it, not only do I have our customary uh, fresh quotes from Rotten Tomatoes, fresh quotes for a rotten movie, but also I have a, an audio clip from Ryan himself kind of explaining how he feels about Hancock. So uh, that should help us set the tone for the rest of the Real Talk conversation. Uh, but but let's do the Rotten Tomatoes quotes first, uh, starting with Scott Weinberg from Cinematical, who says, a slightly messy movie, but it's also one of the year's best. One of the year's best, Alex. And the year they gave us The Dark Knight and Iron Man. And Tropic Thunder and Wally and Hamlet 2 and Smart People. Fuck off. David Poland from Movie City News says, This summer has been defined over and over by boys maturing into men. Hancock is by far the most thoughtful exploration of the issue. Boys maturing into men, I guess Tropic Thunder is about that. Iron Man to an extent. And Hancock. Yeah. I don't know. Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Man, that's a crazy year. Oh, dude. 2008 was blessed times. Finally, Prairie Miller from Newsblaze says, A superhero movie with soul, a magically endowed boozer, and quirky chemistry fueled between those two dramatic heavyweights, Will Smith and Charlize Theron, who go at it like Hillary and Obama duking it out at a presidential primary. Shut up. <laughs> God. Speaking of dating things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Timestamp. That's like out of boyhood. <laughs> Just how much it it captures 2008. And now now let's go to Ryan, as promised. Ryan gave us a little bit of audio to play. Hello, this is Ryan Swinski from the Spit and Polish Presents podcast. And I am the one that recommended Hancock. And what a film. I hope we all enjoyed visiting this film. I hope we all had a good old time watching Will Smith audition to be a superhero. I recommended this film because it is very important to me. Very, very important. A very influential film and a very seminal film in my growing up. For a numerous amount of reasons, but I'll go over the two most important. One, this is the film I would say is the linchpin in my realization and the ongoing realization that Will Smith is not cool and he may never have been cool. I don't know. But this film opened my eyes to how uncool he is, which is weird to say now that we look at Will Smith's career where it is today, and he is the butt of many jokes about how he, how uncool he is, how much of an old man he is, how he feels like he is just trying to catch up with the times and he's failing at every turn. And I wonder if... This film, Hancock, was one of the first building blocks in that, 
in that version, in this trip, in this journey that we have seen Will Smith on at the moment. And the second thing that this film gave upon me in my adolescence, something very important, this was a film in which I really felt betrayed. This is a film that I think many people felt betrayed by because of the marketing and the pitch of the movie not being followed through on. You watch the movie and you're thinking you're going to get a funny, witty, interesting, comedic take on a superhero blockbuster film. Something in terms of what Galaxy Quest was for sci-fi movies. But instead, we get a film that's not even not even close to being as good as Mystery Men with Ben Stiller. And that is what angers me about Hancock. Hancock is a film that gets my blood boiling with rage because of its betrayal. What does it replace this interesting pitch with? A forced, tired, magical realism romance story in which we must root for Will Smith to get with the girl, but we know he can't. This is my thoughts on Hancock, people. There's many things I could go over with it, but I'm sure the contrarians will will, will, will nail it down for you. Uh, Yes, we will. It's a lot to to address uh, (laughs) regarding Ryan's thoughts, (laughs) in addition to, I guess, the movie total. But he says Hancock angers him. You've said that you hate Hancock. Yes. Uh, On my end, I have to say... uh, yeah, I'm right there with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you dragged it out though. That, that was that was uh, you. You definitely brought some theater to that, and there was a, a really good dramatic pause there. I want to try to be like to find the positive in in a serious way, not in the contrarian corner way. But I cannot deny that I actually, much like with Ryan, I was angry during the last 20 minutes of the movie or so. Like, I'd been writing notes and kind of chuckling and, you know, making fun of the movie or whatever, but the the turn, like, that whole sequence in the hospital, it, like, I was actually getting angry as I was watching it. Like, I, I felt, I know this sounds super dramatic, but I felt it was just insulting my intelligence. <laughs> and that made me mad. We'll get to it. But I, I, I think that maybe, you know, the best place to start is... Uh, with something that Ryan mentioned and, and something that maybe we even sort of touched on before we started in Trans Corner, which is like, is Hancock the beginning of a slow decline for Will Smith or was it just something that didn't work? And how do you feel about Will Smith right now? Because honestly, I was surprised as I was looking through his filmography to realize that I haven't watched a Will Smith movie in a while. It's not like they're not out there, you know? They're no longer must-watches for me. No. They might still be good, but there's uh, he kind of seems to have walked away from the from what I used to think of when I thought of Will Smith movies, which were like fun, entertaining blockbusters. And now I was looking at his filmography over you know the last ten years or so, and it's just more of a serious dramas uh, with the occasional like you know small part in something else, and and then there's the Suicide Squad, <laughs> but. But overall, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I would call it a decline yet. I don't feel qualified to say that because I haven't seen most of those movies. But there's definitely a, a change, and there's like Will Smith at the time that he made Hancock versus Will Smith now. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, to me, I Am Legend was kind of the one of like, mm, 
and then Hancock solidified it. I thought Hancock was going to be like a return to form. And I don't know if a lot of people remember, too. There was like for a while the word was it was going to be like a, an R-rated movie. Like Will Smith and Bad Boys is fucking hilarious. So Will Smith, like with the cuffs off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I, I agree with a lot of what Ryan said. I don't agree that Will Smith was never cool. That's that's also a kid that grew up in the 90s in America that watched Fresh Prince of Bel-Air a lot of the time and fucking Independence Day. But yeah, I mean, that there's some truth to that. And there's some validity to that, too. Since Hancock. Nope, nope, nope. I uh, saw Anchorman 2. <laughs> and yeah, I didn't even see Bad Boys for Life. No, I have not seen a single Will Smith vehicle since Hancock. So, Except for uh, After Earth a couple after weeks Earth, ago. After <laughs> Earth, yeah. Recently. Uh, but at, no, at no point since then has it ever felt like he was Will Smith, like he was Will Smith back in the day with Independence Day, Bad Boys, Men in Black, uh, Ollie, and then like I mentioned, iRobot earlier. I, I still like iRobot. Were you being sincere that you like that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and okay. I, I, I don't hate I Am Legend, but I don't think it's a good movie the way that I Am Robot is a good movie. I Am Legend definitely looks like I Robot, not I Am Robot. <laughs> <laughs> I got you, brother. After Hancock, though, my opinion of I Am Legend immediately skyrocketed. I was like, that <laughs> that looks like the Truman Show compared to this shit. It, yeah, it killed Will Smith for me. I mean, it's a combination of that being also with he hasn't made a single movie since then that I thought looked good. You know, watching this and then the urban legend about Django, you know, uh, mm. for anyone that doesn't know what I'm referring to, as the legend goes, similarly to how Quentin Tarantino wrote the script for Pulp Fiction, specifically with the part of Vincent Vega, he had John Travolta in mind. That's what the entire time he wrote that movie, that's what it looked like. When he wrote Django Unchained, Will Smith is who he saw as Django the entire time. Uh, when it came to it and Will Smith was presented with the script, there are two two paths you can take in the urban legend, depending on what you want to believe. <laughs> One was that Will Smith's people, his agent, or you know, just the people around him, read the script and said, there's no way you can do this because it would kill his wholesome image or whatnot. And then the other one, too, is that Will Smith read the script and realized that Django wasn't the hero and Django doesn't kill the bad guy in the end. And so he said no. Watching this movie and then looking at his filmography since, I have now come up with my own third possible (laughs) outcome. (laughs) I believe that Will Smith is in such a stratosphere of superstar, lives such a a life that's removed from everything. And a lot of this, too, is coming off of what we learned about him with uh, After Earth, Mm -hmm. that... I don't think he has anyone around him that tells him what is good and what is bad. And then even moreover, I don't know if he cares. I I think he might just want to make what he wants to make because he's going to make money off of it regardless. Again, to me, this movie is in a class of very few movies. Uh, go ahead and put it on the table here. This is the this is my least favorite movie we've done in the hundreds of movies that we've watched for this. Wow. Uh, 
I will watch Battlefield Earth. I will watch Geely. I will watch Showgirls. I will watch Christmas with the Cranks five times before I ever watch Hancock again. Those movies are very bad, but they, to steal Ryan's line, they do not make my blood boil like Hancock does. So, but getting back to my original sir, point. Sir, I'm, I'm going to need you to pump the brakes for a second. <laughs> <laughs> There's some uh, pretty bold statements <laughs> being issued from your end of the times. call. <laughs> Maybe not five times. <laughs> there is uh just 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 finish. <laughs> <This is like, laughs> I need a it. moment to assimilate <laughs> how how much you dislike this movie. <laughs> I think that it is he is in such a detached place that it doesn't really matter and I'm not really sure if he it it sounds so stupid you know my fat ass sitting here in my room with all my wrestling figures and shit criticizing will smith who's one of the biggest stars ever but there becomes a point in time where you are such a huge star that and you just you there's it's inevitable you're gonna detach from these things and also just like i said i doubt he has anyone around him that tells him these things are good or bad because he is not made despite the fact that i haven't seen any of these movies uh with the exception of maybe Suicide Squad, I don't remember really hearing about any of these doing too well in terms of critical reception or fan reception or whatnot. And I think this was his declaration of, I don't give a shit. I think this movie (laughs) was his, like, I don't give a fuck what you expect of me or want from me. Which, again, that's that's huge dick energy right there. Being able to make something like this that just shows you don't give a shit, I, I respect that. But... Then actually watching this movie, it's just Brad Pitt's detachment from things because of just how big of a star he is and the movies he chooses to do. There's that route and then there's the Will Smith route, I guess is what I'm, I'm trying to say. Coming off of like Ad Astra, which again, did not do that well. It's a very divisive movie. You and I both love it. But you get to a certain point where you just get to pick and choose what you want to do because you're so big. And that's where Will Smith was with this. Uh, I do not fault Will Smith for the bigger issues with this movie, such as the marketing campaign, the just atrocious script. Yep. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's a Will Smith movie starring Will Smith with Will Smith, so it's gonna be it's gonna come down on him in some regard. That is kind of my starting point. It it just it makes me angry. I I don't know how to respond to someone who says that they like it because it's like, oh, you like Hancock? Because guess what? That movie doesn't like you. <laughs> that's kind of like what I think about it. It's it's one of those movies that almost has contempt for its audience. Not almost. It does. It thinks that we are dumb fucking pigs that come to the trough just to slop up whatever they put out. There are I other definitely, issues. I, I think that's definitely the case in the last third of the movie, maybe. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, more, I'm inclined to be more charitable towards everyone involved and kind of like just chuck it up at just... Every single element here, except maybe Jason Bateman, like, you know, every single person involved in the project not being able to pull off what they needed to pull off. And that goes, you know, from the main there star. There was nothing to pull off, though. If this was the script of the movie, that there's no way this would work with anyone under any circumstances. Well, I'm including Vince Gilligan as a screenwriter and anybody else that was, like, uh, okay. involved in telling the story of a fucked up superhero that crosses paths with a a PR guy that's the complete opposite of him in how they you know have a have an adventure together 
<laughs> like, it doesn't make sense. How is he going to make money off that? How how does that I, how does that work? It's what I told you in Contreras Corner. You don't see it in the movie, so it doesn't make sense. But to me, to become the right hand man of the most powerful person on the planet, I mean that is its own reward, you know. And from there, yeah, yeah. you just it, it doesn't apply to this movie, so it doesn't matter. This movie no, doesn't. Make yeah, sense. I was more joking <laughs> within the confines of the movie, but yeah, you're right. So being complimentary, real quick, because I just was extremely negative. I did laugh out loud at something in this movie. Uh, of course, it was Jason Bateman, and it was after that fucking stupid part of Will Smith shoving the guy's head up the other guy's butt. Yep. It cuts to them like in the <laughs> yep. phone booth, and Jason Bateman, <laughs> did you stick a man's head up another man's ass? And it, you know, I can't do it justice. It's Jason Bateman has an a gift, and we've discussed this before. Uh, I think specifically with Smoke and Aces because it's very similar in that mm-hmm. these lines he's given. 99% of people, they wouldn't be funny saying it. You know what I mean? It would just be very matter-of-fact, and that was that. But he has a, a gift to pull things off like that. And, you know, we talked about Ozark recently, too. And even yeah. in a dramatic sense, his delivery and just his body language, he's extremely talented and someone that I think he's an early one that we kind of outed as everyone loves him, but he's almost underrated in what he's able to do and that – that boils down to some things as simple as just delivering one line. I mean, I wasn't kidding. Like, the, he is to me like the one person that kind of. I don't think he fails. I mean, I don't think he succeeds in a sense because you know the movie drags him down. But out of everybody there, like his character, <laughs> you know, he manages to land some funny lines. He's the only person in the, the only character that feels somewhat rooted in some sort of reality, and the only person in this production that somehow I just don't find myself like resenting by the time that the end <laughs> credits roll. <laughs> Fucking Jason Bateman, always, always there to comfort me. Uh, everybody else, I mean, because I've seen everybody involved in so much better things, mm. you know, I, I haven't seen, uh, oh God, the Peter Bear movie that they did on Spit and Polish. Uh, very bad things. Very bad things. I still haven't seen it. Come I wanted on. to watch it, especially because if you know that's a dark comedy and this is supposed to be a dark comedy, and if I hadn't heard you and other people rave about very bad things, my first takeaway from this would be like, oh, Peter Berg can't direct comedy, and that'll be you know that'll be it. It's like it started there. <laughs> Peter Berg can't direct comedy, and he just brought down everybody else. But if very bad things is as good as everybody else says, then that's not the case. So I think that I don't know everybody here having been good before it's just a matter of it just not working and I don't think it's for lack of trying I think it's just more of like cluelessness I don't think that they were the right people for this type of project the script I haven't read the original script but you know the the is it called like he comes at night I think like it's yeah. it's like a big deal like it's one of those like famous hollywood things that that was like a hardcore tonight like, he comes yeah mainly because there's like supposed to be a scene where uh the hancock character is having sex with a woman and then when he ejaculates he like shoots her through the wall or something and i'm like i i can see that that was toned down you know but like i can see how that was the seat through a process of sanitation and a weird development we ended up getting hancock instead of that and Maybe that original R-rated script was something that had less mass appeal, but 
if executed properly, it would have been this like weird cult movie that didn't feel like it was disrespecting its audience, but rather like it committed to like its idea of a a really fucked up superhero, right? Howard the Duck. <laughs> yes, I mean I talk about a movie that commits to its tone there. Uh, Allegedly, that scene that you just mentioned was actually filmed and shown to test audiences where Will Smith kills someone with an orgasm. And they were like, uh, lose that, but keep the part where he sticks a man's head up another man's ass. Yeah, get rid of that, but let's keep in the forced homophobia. Big thing <laughs> yes. of that. Yeah. I want to I finish with Will Smith, uh, or at least, you know, temporarily, because I, I really feel just to counter or to at least offer like a, a yet another option another possibility to what's going on with Will Smith <laughs> in this speaking as someone who just has lost interest to watch Will Smith movies like I'll watch them eventually right like every single movie he's made since then there's the one where he was it concussion you know and then there's uh yeah. yeah the one that you were talking about with Margot Robbie and uh I don't know, whatever else. It, it feels more like like it's like Oscar Beatty stuff. I'll get around to it. You know, it just doesn't, again, it's not exciting in the way that. We keep forgetting about Aladdin also. Aladdin. Okay, so that's the last time I saw him in movies. And it was, the movie is not good. I don't think that it was because of Will Smith. It was actually, from what I remember, it was refreshing to see him just like there having fun. I think I told you, it's not like he's not trying to be Robin Williams, which is a smart choice. Yeah. He's just, you know, being the genie on his own. And that was, yeah, actually, that's, I'm glad that you reminded me of that because I was, I went to watch it. I didn't go to watch it because of Will Smith. I went to watch it because, you know, my wife and I were curious about the, you know, what are they going to do? Will Smith was part of that. Anyway, I think that it's how detached he is from reality or from from what the common people are going through. <laughs> Regardless of that, it could just be that he's like, all right, well, spent a good chunk of my career making these blockbusters that made me a star and now i just want to focus on on being a you know more dramatic actor and so that's what he's been doing and unsurprisingly those are less popular roles because you know Mm -hmm. we have this idea of will smith as a blockbuster actor it's asking a lot more for us to go and watch him on seven pounds or even something like the pursuit of happiness is like that's not the will smith that we grew up with it has nothing to do with the quality of the movies it just has to do with the persona you know that transition from uh blockbuster superstar to serious actor it's tough well i mean he made ali and got nominated for best actor shortly into his filmography yeah but even then i mean he didn't stick with it you know he uh yeah yeah, you're right he went back to like more blockbusters and now maybe now he's just like look i'm in my do we figure out like he's 52 now i think that's from the yeah so he's like i'm in my 50s or he might be in like his mid 40s five years ago or so and uh He's like, it's. I just want to do other stuff. It's the opposite of the Tom Cruise career, where it seems like as he's gotten older, he's doubled down on the whole, like, I'm going to be an action star. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. when was the last time that you saw Tom Cruise take on a, a role that was not action-driven? And that's it's fine. The, it's the, yeah, it's exactly the reverse of that. Telling kids today about, man, Jerry Maguire. You ever seen that? <laughs> exactly. Like, What's oh, his name? No. In- was it a Mission Impossible? Is it Ethan Hunt? Is that what he goes by in Mission Impossible? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Ethan Hunt, but he's being serious. He like cries in one scene. It's fucking crazy. (laughs) So maybe it's not a bad thing in the sense that like, oh, poor Will Smith. You know, because it's like the Ryan take makes it sound like Will Smith was a victim of 
we all thought he was cool and then we all realized he wasn't cool and now he's stuck making uncool movies i don't agree with that yeah and i don't feel sorry for will smith that motherfucker's worth like 500 million dollars I, I don't there's nothing i feel bad about for him he's also a scientologist so maybe, yeah that maybe that played into his uh his accepting of this film that's that's a possibility <laughs> uh, but then you know kind of like what you were saying uh, it makes it sound like like he just makes what he wants and he doesn't really care how it comes across because he's like i'm will smith so i just do whatever i feel like doing and i'm kind of like in the middle i think that when he makes these movies that he's been making for the past 10 years he's well aware that it's like they're not going to be popular but i agree with you he's like i can afford to do it i'm like i'm will smith i can do whatever i want but and i'm gonna do it because now i feel like being a dramatic actor not so much because he's making these movies and he doesn't realize how they're gonna play or how they affect his persona i think that he strikes me as a guy that still like he's very aware of what's you know how he comes across and i think that if will smith wanted to return to you know blockbusters he could have chosen to be on the next suicide squad the one that just came out and it would have been great you know it would have made probably even more money i don't think he's as out of touch with reality i think that he certainly lives on another level as far as you know, the, the choices that he makes, the opportunities that he has being afforded, but this striking contrast between Will Smith in the second decade of the new millennium versus Will Smith <laughs> before that, uh, I think I, I lean towards believing that it's a very voluntary, a very conscious choice on his part, and uh, he knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, it has nothing to do with talent. I think it has to do with just just a preference. Now, as far as Hancock, I do think that I think his performance is terrible. <laughs> yeah. I think it's out of his wheelhouse. Both he and Charlize Theron are clearly talented actors, so I don't want it to seem like they universally suck. That scene where he's getting shot and she's reacting to it is like, the, you use the word cringe to describe that. Embarrassing is a bit dramatic of a term, uh, but it really was. I, I like had to turn away from the screen. It was just so brutal to watch. <laughs> Uh, I think Will Smith has the worst performance in this movie, which is crazy to say that. I think that he... Bold claim. Yeah, well, he he walks around with this just permanent grimace. And uh, I guess that's supposed to be funny. That's supposed to... Like his depiction of a superhero that is grim and gritty and just kind of crass and whatever. It's just so basic and he's a better actor than that. But the way that he the way that he delivers his lines, the way that his body language is just so you know, it's like acting 101. It's just like not he's not bringing anything to the, <laughs> to the what the script already like threw out there. I don't know, I was surprised by how unengaging it was watching it now and I was like it's it took me a while to process to like is Will Smith really just not doing it for me because in on After Earth we actually single him out as being the best part of the movie. <laughs> Even mm-hmm. having a muted character that was only there for like a third of the runtime, we're like, oh, Will Smith, when he's not there, you miss him. And here, it was just like, he's not funny. His, his comic timing is off. The way that he mumbles his lines, it, it's just, it doesn't work for me on any level. And uh, so that's a big problem. And then the script is terrible i mean that's that kind of leads us to to ryan's second point which was like you know that sense of betrayal and i mean i guess i remember the marketing for it because they market to you the first half of the movie 
Yeah, there's like barely anything of him in like that costume or whatever, and there's like one shot of Charlie's Theron looking menacing, <laughs> but it's not. That movie was not advertised as Will Smith versus Charlie's Theron in a battle of superpowers. Before we move on to that, yeah, that's a good segue. But I just wanted to call out real quick too that Will Smith's it falls a lot on the script, obviously, but there's just so much dumb shit in it of like. That when he helps the police and then they take him out and they're like taking pictures and he's doing like he doesn't know how to smile despite the fact that we've already seen him smile in the movie up until that point. Yep. It's just, it's awful. Awful. His performance as a person who I guess we find out at first you don't know why he acts the way he acts. At first it feels like just like he's not acting like a real person. You're like, oh, he's just acting like somebody on like a comedy skit. Yeah. There's nothing behind the joke. And then when you get to the big reveal halfway through the movie, it's like, oh, well, he suffered an accident and now he has amnesia. And so in a way, that's so that's supposed to explain why his uh, social skills are so underdeveloped. But at the same time, he said that that happened like 80 years ago. So you're telling me that in 80 years, he hasn't learned like basic social cues. He, You know, he seems to have trouble like recognizing the most basic patterns when it comes to just social interaction and i understand that he's meant to be drunk and he's meant to just not care but i just never bought it and that's on the script it's also his performance i mean he's he's will smith he had the power to say like uh no i actually think that this character would do this but he went with it hancock's duties range from like helping someone get out of their car to ending like a mob movie type bank robbery situation that mm-hmm. you would see in the, like the old days and it's like w- is this some dystopian version of LA where you know he helps <laughs> put a beached whale back in the ocean but also has to stop these guys with rocket launchers from fucking robbing a bank downtown it's so bad uh and then yeah it, so moving on to the script like you were saying it does it feel to you like there was probably a much longer cut of this that they just had to condense because this feels like a two and a half hour movie jammed into 90 minutes to me it feels like two separate movies uh yeah there's a movie that they sold you in the trailer and the movie so when ryan talks about betrayal that was i don't remember so much of the betrayal of like oh this was the trailer and then they i got this movie when i watched it it was more like oh i'm watching this movie and then halfway through it changes into something else and it's not good it wasn't that's great. the thing like it, it doesn't even flow. It just completely changes as a movie. Mm-hmm. It There's no... It's just like this non sequitur happens and then you're just on a different island. It's kind of like, here we are. It basically makes it seem like the first 30 minutes of the movie was like this bottle episode or something. And then like, here's the real movie. Now, Charlie Theron has eyeshadow on. It's time for the big <laughs> bad shit. It's just so... And it's so sloppy, too. I mean, I know... It, Maybe it would be less sloppy if they spend more time developing it or whatever, but just that... And I they explain it, okay? It, but even then, it still felt so convenient, right? That he... So he ends up <laughs> it, basically at the doorstep of the woman that's being fated to be with him. And I know, like I mentioned in the first corner, like Charlize Theron says, like, oh, yeah, you know, no matter what I do, you always find me because that's just fate. It's still, even with that explanation, it just felt so contrived. Like, trying to be positive about it, trying to be, you know, give Gilligan, whoever else worked on the script, you know, the benefit of the doubt. It was like, I can see how you can get caught up on this cool backstory because forget about the movie that we got, just the idea that there's this couple 
of superpower beings, immortal beings, every time that they link romantically, they lose their powers. And that that is always like the downfall of the relationship. And, you know, and they're caught in the cycle throughout the decades, throughout centuries of just coming together and then coming apart and so on. Like there's something that you can, there's something to that. But to somehow develop that story into Hancock, like that doesn't make any sense, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> the, because the story of the drunk, rude superhero that becomes friends with a PR guy, that's a completely different thing. It almost feels like you had two separate yes. ideas for superhero movies and then you mash them together and like, fuck it. It's just, now it's one. I wanted the, like the first half for me, it's superior. Like, it's not good, but you know, the I enjoy a lot more. Yes, of course. The first half's interesting. Yeah. You know, there's, there's something to that idea w- with all its flaws. There's something to Jason Bateman just training uh, Will Smith in how to be a superhero, like a superhero that people will love. I'm like, I understand that. Easy to catch. To clarify, like you said, it's not good, but it's interesting. Exactly. It's not good, but I'm like, it's not that the second part confused me. I mean, it confused me as in like, why are you doing this? But not in the, <laughs> you know, the, the rules of the world. Like I understood them. I was just like, why are you doing this? <laughs> but the, yeah. it's a good elevator pitch, you know? And uh, and there's some fun. Like I enjoyed the montage of like, you know, Jason Bateman coaching Will Smith. Like that's, you can sense the potential. You're just like waiting for it to come to fruition. The second half is, is not that. And it's just, it's just so weird to just see it morph into this weird story. And again, there is something to the, the idea of a love triangle between two superpower beings and like the schmuck without powers that's caught between them. <laughs> you know, it's like he's, but, but they don't develop that well. And, and where it really gets under my skin that the part that really made me mad and where I felt insulted was that when you get to the climax at the hospital, that's where I felt that they stopped giving a shit. And they're like, we don't care about anything we've established. Hancock goes from being almost dead at the hospital after being shot. But then suddenly, even though Charlie Theron is like literally next to him, he gets his powers back enough to still break walls and beat up two of the guys that are attacking them. That doesn't make any sense. Like the rules that they've established don't allow for that. And just to see them disregard that so easily, just for the sake of like, well, we brought ourselves into this corner and we need to get out of it somehow. Make Jason Bateman kill someone with an axe. Yeah, I mean at this at that point, just like nothing matters. Like they've never established until that, that uh, until that embarrassing sequence with, you know, they're both Will Smith and Charlie Theron are like linked together and experiencing each other's pain. Like they haven't established that sort of connection before. And yet they just drop it there. And we're supposed to just take it because why the fuck not? I mean, they're, they're just doing whatever they want at that point. Like, Charlize Theron has never, she hasn't weakened at all. She's been shown to be, like, even stronger than Will Smith. But then suddenly she can get shot because, you know, that's just what needs to happen. She gets shot and then suddenly he who's been weak becomes strong again. What? How? Why? It, but he becomes strong again only until the script needs him to be weak again so that Eddie Marson can like shoot him again and almost kill him. Nothing makes any sense. That's where I felt that there was just a lack of uh, respect for the audience. It was like, I put up with all your bullshit. The least you could do is be consistent about the world you've created. And they couldn't even do that. That's what made me mad. That's the one thing that I can't be charitable about. 
that's where I felt the betrayal that Ryan was talking about. I'm like, uh, I felt it twice. Once when they changed a, mo- a story that was somewhat interesting into a story that was a mess. And then two, when they got to the climax and they just didn't care about any of the rules that they had set up. And there was two things I wanted to call out in the script that really, really bugged me for some reason. Uh, one, I kind of called out in the first half. Uh, in the very first scene we're introduced to Hancock, he just tries to grope this woman that walks by him. And then later in the movie, there's that part where he goes to help the female police officer and he asks for permission to like help her, to like touch her. Mm-hmm. I guess this is, and again, through what we've lived through uh, since then, not that that makes it ever okay or anything, but obviously watching it through 2021's lenses is going to change things a little bit. I guess there's like trying to show that he grew or something, uh, but that's such an oversimplification of like a really prevalent problem and obviously that came to light in the years that followed that really bugged me and then the forced homophobia was really really weird like we were at the tail end of the you know joking about homosexuality and and, homophobia i guess is the right word for it in comedies um forgetting sarah marshall super bad 40 year old virgin uh i love you man a little bit you know, that kind of those are the ones that come to mind to me mm-hmm. of like the ones that were like the tail end of that being incorporated into parts of the movie. Now, this I want to make it very clear that it doesn't make it right or OK, that that's how people talked and joked around at a point in time. But what the point I'm trying to make is in those movies in Superbad, which I just watched recently, and then obviously one of the most famous examples would be 40 year old virgin the whole you know how i know you're gay scene Mm -hmm. that dialogue made sense within the realms of those movies and it also made sense to people of that time period generation again need to make this clear so these clips aren't isolated or anything that doesn't make it right but in the confines of the movie it's understandable in this they just forced in several moments of intense homophobia that did not go at all with the flow of the movie and just really made no sense to the point where the only thing I could come up with was it was like insisted by the director or the studio or something that this is put in there. Or I guess it just was in the script originally just for a cheap laugh or something. Specifically, the opening scene where he sees the three guys and he's mm-hmm. like, three guys together listening to dance music. Hey, whatever. It's just like, okay. And then later when um, Jason Bateman's showing him like different superheroes, he keeps calling each of them homos. Mm -hmm. And it just, it really seemed like whoever wrote this knew they were at the tail end of being able to get that in scripts and just like forced (laughs) it in there for no reason. I don't know. It's again. One last time, guys. Yeah. And, and, you know, the movies I named uh, works is a weird term, but it at least makes sense within the confines of those here. It just really felt unnecessary and mean-spirited that's what i'm trying to say it really felt like a lot of the dialogue and what happens in this movie just really felt mean-spirited and we we always talk about in these movies that we do if they're 40 years old or four years old we always say well at that time and but what we also bring up too is it's just impossible to not watch movies through 2021's lenses that's where we are right now so Seeing that, I I guarantee that's not something I called out when I screened this in 2008, but it's one of the main things that I walked away from just sticking with me. It just, it did not seem that was included for any other reason than just to be 
nasty. Yeah, but I think that it's also it could be just a remnant from what the original script was like, and and I think that that's that's true to too. A, a different you know problem, another problem that the movie has because you're saying that you know like yeah, all those other movies, those those other examples, like it felt like that made sense within the movie, and here it doesn't. But partly it's because I think this movie is so all over the place about what kind of movie it is. You know, is it like a satire about the superhero genre? Is it a critique of the superhero genre? Is it a dark comedy? Is it a serious is drama? Is it a middle finger to us, the viewer? <laughs> That's definitely what it is. But, you know, there's long stretches of the movie where it's just not even trying to be funny, especially towards the end. But there's also this attempt at making Hancock lovable, even though he's also supposed to be kind of like a really gross character. And... I think that that's the dissonance that you feel, and I felt it too, where, you know, sometimes you feel like he's going too far, but that's because the movie we ended up with was the PG-13 version of a much darker script. And so I think if your movie is about Hancock being just openly homophobic and part of the story is addressing that, you know, he is, he has to be a worse person than the movie ends up selling it to you. You know, here it's just his turn is so quick like you know like he's he tries to grow up a woman he makes homophobic jokes and then one montage later he's like thanking every cop for their help and <laughs> asking a woman if he can like if he has his her permission to touch her and and just not making any crass jokes anymore and it was like so that's not what the movie was about then was it not about this really crude person turning to a better person by his friend Clearly not, because, you know, halfway through the movie becomes something else. But I, th- I think that that was, that's, that's something that maybe hopefully made sense in the original version of the story. And then it just got lost once they, let's say, developed it to death. But no, more like a audience tested it to death, maybe. I don't know. The, when you were going over the, just the, the beat by beat, what the plot is supposed to be, my, I was just realizing it's like the fucking nerve this movie had to come out the same year as The Wrestler. Which is like a very similar story of, you know, not a legitimate superhero. But that movie, though, really shows what it's like to learn these life lessons and be stuck with this. So, Well, but that's because he's a real character. Like Randy the Ram is, yeah. is a real, like, it feels like a complex person. With You understand why he's doing what he's doing. Like, you never understand why Hancock is doing what he's doing. I don't know why, why he bothers saving people. Wrapping it up, as I already mentioned... I didn't really stop people from going. I've never been in someone's home who owned this movie, and I would prefer to keep it that way. <laughs> but a lot of people went and saw this. Worldwide gross, just a shade under $630 million, making it number four of the top five box office attractions of the year 2008. Call me an asshole. One more time. I don't know that I put this at the very bottom of our contrarian's totem pole. I was very fired up. Uh, (laughs) I was thinking about it. (laughs) Showgirls, that scene in particular we called out when we watched it, that makes me mad. Uh, I don't know if that movie as a whole makes me as angry as Hancock. I still feel like Geely is so bad that I was able to laugh at it at points. Mm -hmm. But Battlefield Earth and Showgirls, I... I would have to really rethink that claim <laughs> um, because I isn't Battlefield Earth like two hours long? That's a big one. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. so Hancock has a short runtime, 
and it has Jason Bateman. And it has, I guess, the germ of a good idea, which actually kind of makes it even hurt more when it goes so badly off the rails. I mean, I would never watch this again. If I didn't know the people involved, like I would just swear off watching anything by them again. <laughs> but <laughs> thankfully, they all see have very bad things, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and, okay, so we haven't really talked much about Peter Berg, yet, but I didn't think this was directed well, obviously. I mean, I always say, you know, ultimately the director is where the responsibility lies because he's a director, he or she, you know, the, the director's the director. I mean, unless you're talking about like a very specific <laughs> circumstance, like, you know, After Earth, where clearly Will Smith was calling the shots as much as Shyamalan was, if not more. And, and mm. that could have happened here also. That what we're seeing is more Will Smith than Peter Berg. But there are some Peter Bergisms, Peter Bergerisms, I don't know how, that I I felt I recognized. Because I know Peter Berg mostly from action stuff, like uh, The Kingdom is a movie that I like of his, you know, with Jamie Foxx, Jason Bateman's in it too. And uh, he directed several episodes of The Leftovers, which I really like. This is one of my favorite shows ever. And uh, I'm pretty sure I've seen a couple other things. He's done some really bad movies too he did battleship uh just god lone survivor which i did not care for yeah but he has a style and i don't think that that style lends itself for comedy there were a lot of close-ups <laughs> in this movie in hancock that i was like can you pull back please <laughs> can you give me a wider <laughs> shot because this is just making me uncomfortable like can i see a little higher like do we have to cut jason bateman's forehead like right in the middle can we just can you change the lenses it felt like he was shooting it mostly as a drama and then i guess unsurprisingly the movie turns into a drama just for the last 20 minutes but i don't feel that there was a good marriage of story and director as if this movie needed more problems yes it was bad (laughs) if you want to watch a peter berg movie watch very bad things or the rundown and to a lesser extent, Friday Night Lights. Oh, yeah. I like Friday Night Lights. I like Friday Night Lights. I like The Kingdom. I liked his episodes of The Leftovers. He's been an actor in something we did, too, wasn't he? I don't know, but I know I always think of him on uh, in Copland. Yeah, he was in Smoke and Aces, duh. Oh, yeah, that's right. Back to the scene of the crime. Yeah, Copland. God, what a great movie. It's the opposite of Hancock in that it's a good movie. <laughs> and... uh and it comes together in a way that Hancock never does. No, F. I I don't. Th- F minus isn't a thing. This is an F that you. The only credit you got for it was you wrote your name on the piece of paper. That's what this is. If the last twenty minutes hadn't actually made me angry, I'd probably give it like a star, star and a half. But it's so rare for me to get this worked up <laughs> that I I just I think I'm gonna give it half a star. Because as much as I've tried to kind of, you know, have a somewhat civil analysis <laughs> of what was going on, I I have to ultimately just default to the whole, like, fuck this movie. It became a very unpleasant experience towards the end, and it made me mad that it wasted my time, that it wasted the time of everybody else that was involved. So, yeah, half a star. It's a terrible movie. Don't watch it. It's not even worth it for the few times that Jason Bateman could make you laugh. Absolutely. There's plenty of other things with Jason Bateman you could watch. There's plenty of other things with Jason Bateman. There's plenty of other things with Will Smith, Charlize Theron that you could watch. Even fucking, what's the bad guy's name? Uh, Eddie Marzen. He was one of the dwarves in Snow White and the Huntsman. Watch that movie. 
It's better than this. Charlize Theron's in it too. Oh my God, she is. <laughs> yes, and she's much better than that. <laughs> my final verdict on Hancock is: watch Snow White and the Huntsman. It's a fun movie. <laughs> well, Julio, you had me worried. I'm glad we agreed. Ryan, we hope we hit all the points that you would have. I know you and I had some conversation back and forth about it. And uh, yeah, it's it's not good. So the hope is we move on to something that is. Julio, what's next? So we're, we're jumping into the unknown, uh, Alex, because we have uh, another multiple of 10 episode coming up, not right away, but following. So for episode 140... We're finally going to tackle a gray area movie that we brought up time and again on the show. And that is the Michael Bay masterpiece, Pain and Gain. Hell yeah. But before we get there, we have one last rotten movie, one last rotten slot to fill. And uh, because Pain and Gain, whether you like it or not, you kind of, you can't deny that it's just, it's it's a manly movie. It's a testosterone <laughs> fueled movie directed by a testosterone fueled filmmaker uh so we figured for contrast how about like what if the previous episode is a movie directed by a woman so we looked through our our list of movies and we landed on in the cut directed by jane campion who you might have heard alex uh made that uh movie with rogue the piano a long time ago mm-hmm that's what I know her the most from. I know she's done a lot of other stuff since then, but I know her mostly from that. Uh, in the cut stars Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo, and it's supposed to be a sort of thriller, dare I say, maybe even a sexy thriller. <laughs> but it's not from the 90s, so uh, hopefully it's not like uh, the kind of stuff that we were doing a few months ago. But anyway, I've never seen it, you've never seen it, and it's, it's rotten. Anybody's guess how this could go. It could be a misunderstood masterpiece, in which case uh, we'll watch a new good movie. Or it could be terrible. But even then, I would imagine it's not worse than Hancock. So either way, what's <laughs> a step yeah, up? Yeah, I was about to say, we're, we're going up no matter what, so yeah. we'll be all right. All right, well, that closes out this episode. want to move into perennial plugs, as we like to do here at the end. Starting off by thanking the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our logo was designed by our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothieser. Hans is a very talented guy, as you can tell from uh, not just our logo, but all the graphics that he made for our webpage, for our patron page, for upcoming merch. He has a website, mildemonios.pe, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S.pe, where you can find uh, links to all his works. That includes his zombie novels and also his podcast, CS Nación Combi, uh, which is about Peruvian current affairs. And he also has Marginal, which is about economy. As far as his novels, well, Hans has a new one out, which is uh, sort of a fake Peruvian history textbook. The fake part uh, has to do with uh, with zombies being inserted uh, all throughout Peruvian history. And I actually helped write one of the chapters. Thank you, Hans, for all your support. And lastly, we'd like to thank Zoe Perez, the guru of our social media game. If you haven't already, be sure to go to facebook.com slash contrarianprime. Give us a like if you have Instagram. We're on there, too, at contrarianprime. 
Zoe helps uh, create some cool videos for our Facebook account and um, interactive graphics, audio clips, videos for our Instagram account as well. Makes our shit look sharp, and we appreciate it, Zoe. Keep up the good work. So with all that being said, that is going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.